The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club. The Tempest is the first play in the first folio, the collection of plays put together by Shakespeare's colleagues John Hemmings and Henry Condell in the early 1620s. As a document, it isn't perfect, and there are arguments for several other plays that Shakespeare wrote or contributed to which aren't included. There's a lovely recent play called The Book of Will by Lauren Gunderson that imagines the stress of trying to get the publishing rights to all of the plays. It certainly gives a sense of how complicated a document the folio is and how incomplete it must by default be. We don't know why The Tempest is the first book in the volume. Amazingly, though, its position at the start of it led for a very long time to the assumption that this was an early play by Shakespeare. Now that we can be reasonably sure that it was first written and performed in 1610 or 1611, we consider it a late play. As a result now, a whole different set of assumptions float around this play. Throughout all of the episodes of this book club series, we have discussed and resisted or relished the temptation to see Shakespeare's own biography and his own life inside his plays. This kind of imaginative reading continues to delight us. Look no further than the recent success of the beautiful book Hamnet. And if you haven't read it, treat yourself to it. Especially if you're a Hamlet fan, it's very, very good indeed. Of all of the Shakespeare biography possibility plays, The Tempest is one of the most fertile. We've been led to believe that this could be Shakespeare's farewell to the theatre, since there is so much in it about the magic of performance, and indeed about saying a kind of farewell to it. Understandably then, a rather powerful association has developed that links Shakespeare with Prospero, the lead character, and casts this play as Shakespeare's own valedictory performance in the theatre, the last piece he wrote before he moved back to Stratford. It's a lovely idea, but there are a good few plays, most of them collaborations with other writers, that come after The Tempest, so it doesn't quite hold true. The story of the play is quite a simple one. Interestingly enough, it's Shakespeare's own invention, not particularly drawn from any existing story. Experts believe he was somewhat inspired by eyewitness accounts of a notable shipwreck of the boat The Sea Venture on the island of Bermuda in 1609. The play appeared at the height of exploration towards what was then being called the New World. A little over a century after Columbus's first voyage, it was all the rage to take to the seas in the hope of finding treasures to plunder on the new continents on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. The Tempest is named after the storm which opens the play, but it's really about Prospero, an exiled duke who has been living in this exile on a magical island for the last several years. Prospero comes from Milan, pronounced Milan in the play. He was usurped by his brother Antonio, and he barely escaped with his little daughter. They were shoved onto a boat and launched out to sea, and wound up drifting to this strange island. When they arrived, Prospero overcame a witch called Sycorax, who had such magical powers that she could control the moon and incarcerate her creatures inside trees. Prospero's magic is stronger and more beautiful and better. There is a moral quality implied. 
Sycorax does not appear in the play, but she is or was the mother of Caliban, who is now Prospero's slave. Caliban is native to this island and is one of the earliest depictions in literature of a person from outside European culture and civilization. His name is a bit of a jumble, something between Caraban, an early version of the word that gave us Caribbean, and a rearrangement of the word cannibal. Cannibal became Caliban, which was unfortunately how many English-speaking peoples referred to any and all exotic foreign peoples for far too long in history. Caliban is the first to have a voice, but Shakespeare also makes him dangerous, lecherous, violent and very unpleasant at times, a range of negative qualities associated with savages, cannibals, natives or whatever other bad pejorative word that might have been applied to foreigners and people who were other. Even though Shakespeare makes him a slave, and one that is barely human at that, he manages to articulate the pain of colonisation, even in this tiny microcosm on this little island with so few other inhabitants. This island's mine, by Sycorax my mother, which thou takest from me. When thou camest first, thou strokest me, and made much of me, wouldst give me water with berries in it, and teach me how to name the bigger light, and how the less that burn by day and night. And then I loved thee, and showed thee all the qualities of the isle, the fresh springs, brine pits, barren place and fertile. Cursed be I that did so. All the charms of Sycorax, toads, beetles, bats light on you. For I am all the subjects that you have, which first was mine own king, and here you sty me in this hard rock, whilst you do keep me from the rest of the island. This argument continues after Prospero insists that Caliban should be grateful for all the good things and civilising influences that he has brought, chief among them words and communication. Caliban's response is wonderful. You taught me language, and my profit on it is I know how to curse. The Red Plague rid you for learning me your language. I must resist the desire to see that Shakespeare had any affinity with Ireland and Irish people, but this line in particular has always stayed with me, since, of course, we, on my little island, have been in tumultuous dialogue with our English neighbours for nearly a thousand years, and yet it is English that we speak. Of course, we speak it rather well, and certainly we know how to curse better than most. Meanwhile, Prospero's island, or perhaps we should say Caliban's island, has a few other inhabitants. That little daughter with whom Prospero fled from Milan is now a young woman, and her name is Miranda. In deliberate contrast with Caliban is Ariel, another servant, another supernatural creature possessed with amazing magic. It is Ariel that whips up the magical but ultimately illusory tempest at the start of the play. The storm seems to wreck a ship which, very conveniently, is carrying Prospero's usurping brother and many of his cronies. They've all just been to Africa for the wedding between the daughter of Alonso, the evil duke's dear friend, and the prince of Tunis. This detail doesn't have much to do with the story, except that it further colours the depiction of sea travel as a means of contact between the great cities and ports of the world. The world of Antonio and Alonso's Italy is one of commerce and conquest. Only twelve years earlier, Prospero was set adrift on the seas and presumed perished. 
But almost a generation later, ships are now departing for new worlds and new financial opportunities. This Alonso, the usurping brother's friend, is also the king of Naples. Rather unusually then, we have the Duke of Milan, or Milan, and the king of Naples on the same ship, and with them Alonso's son and heir, who's called Ferdinand. Having so many important folks on the same vessel is surely asking for trouble, and right enough they are separated when Ariel's storm seems to wreck the ship. After quite a long scene of introduction in which Prospero explains their story to Miranda, we get a sense of all that must follow in the play. I quite like the idea of this magician trying to explain his craft to his daughter now that she's old enough to hear it. If you want to buy into the idea of Prospero being very like Shakespeare, it is certainly tempting to wonder what it might have been like for him if and when he ever chose to talk about his own theatrical magic and his life at the Globe with either of his daughters. Prospero stage manages the experience of the shipwrecked men on this island. He has Ariel lead them on, mess with them, and wind up separated into carefully managed and dramatically effective groups. Antonio and Alonso and their men are in one group, but Ferdinand is separated and just happens to bump into Miranda. And, surprise, surprise, they fall instantly in love. Things slowly build up between them and eventually, satisfied that he might be an acceptable match for his daughter, Prospero agrees that Ferdinand and Miranda can be together. He even puts on a magical show for them, a little display of the vanity of his art, in which the Roman goddesses Ceres, Iris and Juno appear and say very pretty things to the young lovers. Elsewhere on the island, two clowns have rolled ashore, perhaps from a lower deck of the wrecked ship. Very soon they cross paths with Caliban, who hails these creatures as his new masters and potential friends. The two newcomers, Trinculo and Stefano, soon happen upon some booze, and so this unlikely trio, the original strange bedfellows with which misery acquaints a man, get roaring drunk and fantasise about all they can achieve and acquire together. Meanwhile, Ariel is starting to get a little agitated, since Prospero has promised liberty in exchange for all the services he's demanding through this play. At the end of the mask of those Roman goddesses, Prospero gives one of the great speeches in the play, explaining to Ferdinand that the show is over, and it has to be over. Our revels now are ended. These, our actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits, and are melted into air into thin air. And, like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud-capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherit, shall dissolve, and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Sir, I am vexed, Bear with my weakness. My brain is troubled. Be not disturbed with my infirmity. If you be pleased, retire into my cell, and there repose. A turn or two I'll walk to still my beating mind. Ferdinand and Miranda withdraw into the cell, where, interestingly, Ferdinand, who came from Naples, which was a hotbed of the game at that time in Europe, the two of them play a game of chess, and it is the only instance of the game being played in all of Shakespeare 
And if you've been watching The Queen's Gambit this Christmas, you know how fashionable that is as a reference. But in case it shows up at a table quiz on Zoom or in real life anytime soon, you heard it here first. Meanwhile, Prospero is left to ponder all the plates that he has set to spinning. He imagines that it is time to break his staff and drown his books, swearing off his rough magic. So he brings all the threads of this tapestry together and lifts the enchantments on the various characters he's been directing and stages his grand finale. He forgives the trespasses of those who have trespassed against him, but he does threaten to blackmail anyone who doesn't agree, so Antonio and Sebastian have two reasons to toe the line. Prospero gets his title back and agrees to return to Milan. Our two drunken clowns are put in their place, and even Caliban promises, or is made promise, to be good. Ferdinand and Miranda's wedding is secured with the approval of Alonso, the King of Naples, and poor Ariel is given one final job, to give everybody good weather for the return to Italy, and is then set free. To end the play, we get an epilogue, in which Prospero again speaks alone to the audience. Now my charms are all o'erthrown, and what strength I have's mine own, which is most faint. Now tis true. I must be here confined by you, or sent to Naples. Let me not, since I have my dukedom got and pardoned the deceiver, dwell in this bare island by your spell. But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. Now I want spirits to enforce, art to enchant, and my ending is despair unless I be relieved by prayer, which pierces so that it assaults mercy itself and frees all faults. As you from crimes would pardoned be, let your indulgence set me free. Again, don't be too tempted to imagine that these are the last words that Shakespeare ever wrote for the stage. Sadly, they aren't. Even his life didn't get to be that neat. The play's story may seem very simple indeed. A shipwreck, real or magical, brings a bunch of Italians to a mysterious island. There, an exiled other Italian, and his daughter, and his slaves, await them, hoping for revenge and restoration. Having messed them around a little bit and showed them who's boss, the exiled man arranges a big reunion and everything ends rather nicely. What's really exciting about this play is just how much theatre Shakespeare crams into this rather short text. There are echoes and setups and plot devices from a huge number of plays. We have brothers fighting very severely, like in Hamlet. We have an exiled duke living in a new, more natural environment like as you like it. We have an exuberant, confusing story that takes place over the course of a single day, like the Comedy of Errors. We have a duke trying to mastermind everything in the background, like Measure for Measure. We have young lovers encountering the magical, like in A Midsummer Night's Dream. Like many of their romances, we begin with a turbulent event that splits families apart, causes chaos and must be negotiated, before a reunion that's full of forgiveness, leading to new couplings and hope for the future. Also, a frequent feature of the romances, is a strong focus on fathers and daughters. Not only that, spreading the net of influence a little wider, we have the zany clowns trying to hatch a plot with a misshapen older figure, 
And in this, Trinculo, Stefano and Caliban can trace a lineage that goes all the way back to the Commedia dell'arte from Italy. There's singing, there's dancing, and in any decent production there's at least a little bit of magic. On top of all of this, not to mention, of course, the references to chess, there's a new and very fashionable theatrical offering called a mask. Masks had evolved throughout the Elizabethan period, and now, at the height of James's reign, the Jacobean mask was increasingly popular and extravagant. In a play so stuffed with performance and style and almost everything to do with the theatre, it's no surprise that Shakespeare's only mask appears here. It's a gorgeous pageant of goddesses and dancing, poetry and song. The real expert on masks was Ben Jonson, and it's very interesting that instead of making something that even tries to compete with Jonson's style and flair, Shakespeare cuts his version off. The mask is the show that Prospero puts on for Ferdinand and Miranda, and it's lovely, but he ends it with his speech about how it has all faded into thin air. In this play, it's equally important to see the man behind the curtain, and it's that man who addresses us so sincerely and alone at the end of the play. For Shakespeare, the actor on the stage is maybe the most powerful device or trick or technique in all of the theatre. With an actor alone, he can conjure up any world. Even in a play like this, that invites the use of so much theatre magic or theatre technology, since on the stage the line should always be blurred, it's the words that begin and end it all when they're spoken by an actor. The Tempest actually is rather like a prism through which we can shine a light on many different things. As I mentioned, it was received very differently at times when it was considered an early or a late play. The politics of colonialism and globalisation cast a very heavy shadow here, since the world is catching up and paying more respect to peoples and civilizations and cultures that predate European empire building and exploration and influence. Caliban was a slave on the stage in London over a decade before 1619, when the first slaves were transported to the colonies in Virginia. Before that process even began, Shakespeare had this character on stage railing against a foreign oppressor. I don't mean to suggest that Shakespeare was entirely on Caliban's side. Throughout, we get a sense that Prospero has good magic, while Sycorax is bad, and therefore her son Caliban is also bad. Contemporary readers nowadays will obviously question this balance. Is it a question of European and other, or between male and female, or any number of imbalanced opposites that detail what this good or bad might mean? Also, throughout literature, from this play all the way as far as Harry Potter, there is the sense that the distance between what is good and what is bad magic is a very thin line. Whatever lens you might examine it through, there is a heavy bias towards European knowledge versus anywhere else, which is, of course, endlessly reflected in world history. The Tempest has inspired a great many rewrites and commentaries, essays and reactions, and even a few operas. There have been several adaptations and musicals, and even films, notably by Peter Greenaway and Julie Taymor, who cast Helen Mirren as a female Prospera. For my money, though, it's a play by, for, and maybe even about the theatre. This was never more so the case than in an unforgettable production at the Abbey Theatre in Dublin about 20 years ago, 
with one of the most extraordinary designs I've ever seen on the stage. The set design was by Monica Frawley, and she made a space for the play that looked like a theatre that had been eaten up by a beach. So she combined the theatre and the island magic in one very special design. The politics of this little island, Ireland, were reflected in the accents of the performers, and Alwyn Fuere played an aerial that was both powerful and terrifying. I am surprised at how many images of this remarkable show have stayed in my mind almost two decades later, and I'd like to dedicate this little episode to Monica, that most wonderful of designers, who passed away this year. Whether or not you choose to be convinced by the idea of The Tempest as Shakespeare's own farewell to his rough magic, it remains a beautiful, challenging play. Of all the productions I wish I'd seen live, I think the Japanese version by Ninagawa is probably on the top of the list, since he brought together styles from Japanese traditional theatre, contemporary comedy, pop music and even soap operas from the television, in a production that was, as he described it, about the correspondences between the shards of a broken mirror. For him, it was a play about a midlife crisis rather than a farewell to arms. And indeed, Ninagawa directed for another three decades after his great success with this play. So, it can be a play that comes early, a play that arrives late, or one that starts a whole new chapter in the middle of one's life. And if that's not a sign of something that's very special, I don't know what is. For next week, I'm going to break my own guideline and take us to a play that does not appear in the folio. If I have to justify this outrageous move, it's so that there will be as many book club episodes as there are plays within the first folio. Needless to say, there won't be one about Hamlet. So, instead, I'm including something of a bonus, and that will be for Pericles. I really love this play, and if you join me in reading it and then tune in next week, I really hope you'll get a sense of why. Until then, I hope you're safe and comfortable and enjoying these quiet days that bring us to the end of the year, and I'll speak to you next time.